Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode three of The Last Crusades and the title of this episode is The Rise of the Ottoman Turks. So we've reached the late 14th century and the real Crusades, by which I mean the Crusades to recover the Holy Land, have faded in medieval people's minds, although they still talked about Crusades and the idea of a Crusade was still a very real concept for them. But the religious zeal had gone. In the last episode, we heard about the Alexandrian Crusade of 1365, which was really nothing more than a bloodthirsty attack on the great Egyptian city in order to loot and plunder and then return back to the West. It wasn't really a serious attempt to recover Jerusalem, as so many of the previous Crusades had been, and it had none of the religious fervour of those earlier Crusades. So, I think it's ironic that as the original crusading spirit was dying in the West, there arose in the East a new enemy that was in many ways very similar to the original threat posed to Europe back in the 11th century, which had led to the First Crusade and indeed the whole crusading movement. And it's even more ironic that this threat was from the same race that had caused Urban II to preach in 1095 at Clermont that Christendom was in peril and that a great expedition was needed to save the Eastern Christians, as he called the Byzantine. And so who was this race? Well, it was, of course, the Turks. But it was no longer the Seljuk Turks who had dealt Byzantium a mortal blow at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. It was a new tribe and a new dynasty called the Ottoman Turks. And the extraordinary thing about the Ottoman Turks was that their rise to power would be far more spectacular than anything the Islamic world had seen for centuries, really since the amazingly successful Arab caliphates after the death of Muhammad in the 7th and 8th centuries. The Ottoman Turks would create an empire that lasted until the First World War and which in its heyday in the 16th and 17th centuries was probably the most powerful state in the world and it was centred on modern Turkey and modern Istanbul which is of course the old Constantinople capital of the Eastern Roman and Byzantine empires. So, in this episode, let's hear about the origins of the Ottoman Turks and the so-called crusade that was launched to fight them. As before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In the late 14th century, the balance of power in the eastern Mediterranean was changing, and it was changing to the disadvantage of Europe. The planners of the First Crusade had seen clearly that the rescue of the Holy Land depended on the maintenance of Christian power in Anatolia. But since Pope Urban II's death, no Western statesman had had the wisdom to realise that the maintenance of Anatolia depended upon Byzantium. The crusading movements of the 12th century had embarrassed the Byzantine Empire, they had added to the problems that Byzantium had to face and had never allowed the emperors the leisure to attend to the subjection of the Turkish invaders. The task may well have been impossible for the Turkish technique of invasion with its destruction of agriculture and of communications made reconquest a difficult task while the varied ambitions of emperors such as Manuel and Andronicus Comnenus resulted in a further 
the dispersion of energy. The disaster at Mansikert in 1071 allowed the Turks into Anatolia. The disaster at Myriocephalum in 1176 ensured that they would remain there. But it was the Fourth Crusade and its irreparable destruction of the Byzantine imperial system that gave them the opportunity to go further. During the 13th century, Christendom had its last opportunity for dealing with the Turks. Their power in Anatolia had hitherto been dependent on the Seljuk Sultanate of Konya. The Mongol invasions, which began in 1242, undermined and ultimately destroyed this Seljuk state. The Byzantine emperors living in exile at Nicaea were aware of their chance, but their European preoccupations and their yearning to recover their imperial capital of Constantinople against the hostility of the Latin West hampered their efforts. Meanwhile, the Christian West lacked the foresight and experience to understand the wider situation. By the time the Byzantines were re-established in Constantinople in 1261, the opportunity had been lost. The emperors of the House of Palaeologus had to contend with young and vigorous kingdoms in the Balkans, with the demands of the Italian republics, and with the risk of a Latin reconquest, which was very real until Charles of Anjou was crippled by the Sicilian Vespers. By the end of the 13th century, it was too late. The Seljuks were gone, but in their place were several active and ambitious emirates, strengthened by the immigration of Turkish tribes subject to the Mongols. It would need a long and concerted effort to dislodge them. Chief amongst the emirs was the Grand Karaman, whose dominion stretched along the interior of the country from Philadelphia to the Antitaurus. There were other emirs established at Italia, at Aydin and at Manissa. The north coast was still held by Byzantium and its sister empire of Trebizond, but south of Trebizond the country was occupied by the Turks, and in the northwest a lively new emirate was arising under an enterprising Turkish prince called Osman. The Christian West was by now growing aware of the importance of Anatolia, although it saw it less as a base for aggression against Europe than as an area in which it needed bases for the control of the Mediterranean. The Hospitaller's occupation of Rhodes was largely the result of chance, but it illustrated a new direction. The Italian republics had long been interested in the islands of the Aegean. It was natural that their concern and the concern of the whole Christian world should spread to the mainland opposite. When the Emir Omar of Aydin, who was in possession of the excellent harbour of Smyrna, built a fleet in order to indulge in piracy in Aegean waters, both the Venetians and the knights at Rhodes took action. In 1344, a squadron, to which the Venetians and their dependents contributed about 20 ships, the knights six and the Pope and the King of Cyprus four apiece, set out against Smyrna. The Latin Patriarch of Constantinople, Henry of Asti, was in command. The Emir of Aydin was defeated in a sea battle on Ascension Day off the entrance to the Gulf. The Christian allies at the Pope's request refused an invitation from the Genoese ex-lord of Chios, Martin Zachariah, who had joined the expedition, to restore him his island, which the Byzantines had recaptured, but instead they sailed up to Smyrna. After a short struggle, the city fell into their hands on the 24th of October, although the 
citadel was untaken. The easy victory was mainly due to the Emir Omar's unpreparedness and his jealous fear of his fellow Emirs. He came with his army too late to save the city, but the victors were lured to try to invade the interior. They were heavily defeated a few miles from the city and Henry of Asti and Martin Zachariah were killed after the Turks had failed to retake Smyrna. A treaty signed in 1350 entrusted it to the Hospitallers, though the citadel remained in Turkish hands. The knights held Smyrna until 1402 when it was stormed by the Mongol Timur. While the fate of Smyrna was still in the balance, a French nobleman, Humbert II, Dauphin Vienne, announced his desire to go on a crusade to the east. He was a weak, vain man, but genuinely pious and without personal ambition. After some negotiations with the Pope, it was decided that he should go to supplement the Christian effort at Smyrna. He set out from Marseille with a company of knights and priests in May 1345 and was joined on his eastward journey by troops from northern Italy. After various ineffectual adventures, he reached Smyrna in 1346 and his army defeated the Turks in a battle outside the walls. He did not remain there for long. By the summer of 1347 he was back in France. The whole expedition had been singularly futile. Its importance was that the church was now ready to regard an expedition to Anatolia as a crusade. In 1361 Peter of Cyprus, who had recently acquired Coricus from the Armenians, obtained the help of the Hospitallers in an attack on the Turkish port of Italia. After a brief struggle it fell into his hands on the 24th of August. The neighbouring emirs hastened to offer him allegiance, thinking that his friendship might be useful against their chief enemy, the Grand Caraman. They soon withdrew their submission, however, and made various attempts to recover Italia, which still remained in Cypriot hands for 60 years. But, meanwhile, the attention of Europe had been forcibly turned further north. The first decades of the 14th century saw an extraordinary growth in the power of the Turkish Emirate, founded by Osman and called Osmanli, or Ottoman, after him. In 1300, Osman was a petty chieftain with lands in southern Bithynia. By the time of his death in 1326, he ruled a large territory on the Asiatic side of the Sea of Marmara. His expansion was due partly to his skilful and subtle diplomacy towards his fellow emirs and still more to the weakness of Byzantium. In 1302, the Byzantine emperor Andronicus II had rashly hired the services of a Catalan company led by Roger Flor, the ex-Templar, who had made his fortune by his disreputable behaviour during the sack of Acre. Roger fought successfully against the Turks, but still more actively against his imperial master. He was murdered in 1306, but the Catalan company remained in imperial territory in hostility to the Byzantine Empire until 1315. During its wars, it brought a Turkish regiment formerly employed by the Byzantine Emperor in Asia across into Europe. Soon after the Catalan company was gone, there was civil war in the empire between Andronicus II and his grandson Andronicus III, which only ended on the former's death in 1328. Both sides used the Turks as mercenaries. Meanwhile, Osman's son, Orhan, continued his father work. He established a vague hegemony over the emirs to the south of his lands and he continued with the conquest of Bithynia. Nicaea was captured in 1329 and Nicomedia in 1337. 
Meanwhile, in the Byzantine Empire, civil war broke out again in 1341 between John V and his father-in-law, John Catechuzenos, while the growing power of Stephen Dushan of Serbia distracted the attention of all the Balkan peoples. In 1354, Orhan, who had taken the title of Ottoman Sultan, sent troops across the Dardanelles to take the town of Gallipoli. Two years later, he moved several thousand of his people across the Straits and settled them in Thrace. Next year, he was able to advance inland and capture the great fortress of Adrianople, which became his second capital. By the time of his death in 1359, almost all Thrace was in Ottoman hands and Constantinople was isolated from its European possessions. His son and successor Murad I was well able to carry on his predecessor's work. His first action was to found the core of Janissaries from forcibly converted Christian slave children sent to him as tribute. The expansion of the Ottoman Turks was not unnoticed in Western Europe, there seemed to be little danger as yet for the European continent, for the great Serbian Empire seemed well able to check any advance, but Constantinople itself was obviously threatened and with it the commercial interests of the Italians. There was, however, a religious division between Byzantium and the West. The policy of the Western Church was to insist on Byzantine submission to Rome before there could be any question of sending them help. This form of moral blackmail was bound to fail. Not only religious conviction, but national pride and the memory of past outrages like the sack of 1204 made it impossible for the Byzantine people to agree to Latin ecclesiastical domination, even if their rulers were ready to comply. In 1365, Amadeus VI, Count of Savoy, took the cross. Pope Urban VI had been busily preaching the crusade on behalf of Peter of Cyprus, and Amadeus had every intention of proceeding to the Holy Land, but he was first cousin to the Byzantine Emperor John V and he wished to help him. The Pope gave him permission to begin his campaign by fighting against the Ottoman Turks on condition that he secured the submission of the Byzantine Church. The Venetians did their best to check his crusade, fearing that it might interfere with their commercial interests. They particularly did not wish him to join King Peter of Cyprus and were relieved when their rumours of Peter's treaty with Egypt determined him to concentrate on Byzantium. He assembled a distinguished collection of knights, but from the outset he had difficulties over finance. The expedition reached the Dardanelles in August 1366 and at once laid siege to Ottoman Gallipoli, which fell on the 23rd of August. But instead of landing in Thrace and attempting to clear the province of the Ottoman Turks, Amadeus sailed on to Constantinople. There he found that the Byzantine Emperor had been treacherously captured by the Bulgarian king and all his energy was there therefore devoted to the rescue of his cousin, which was only achieved by an attack on the Bulgarian port of Varna. But when the Byzantine emperor John V was rescued, Amadeus found that he had spent all his own money, as well as the money that he'd extorted locally and also borrowed from the empress. He was obliged to return home, but first he made the Byzantine emperor promise to bring the Byzantine church under Rome, and when the patriarch of Constantinople, Philotheus, came with a Greek knight to his galley to tell him that the Byzantine people would depose the emperor if he agreed, he kidnapped them and took them with him to Italy. He returned home at the end of 1367, His crusade had been almost valueless. The Turks recaptured Gallipoli immediately on his departure. Under Murad, the Ottoman Turks rapidly increased their power. 
Murad reduced the Western Anatolian Turkish emirs to subjection and advanced in Europe after a victory over the Serbs on the Maritza in 1371. Bulgaria became a vassal state and was soon entirely annexed. In 1389, a decisive battle was fought between the Serbs and the Turks at Kosovo. Murad was assassinated by a Serb just before the battle, but his troops, which vastly outnumbered the Serbs, were completely triumphant. The Ottoman Turks were now masters of the Balkans. Balkans. Though the crusading energy of the West was diverted in 1390 by a disastrous expedition led by Louis II, Duke of Bourbon, against Almadia near Tunis, it was clear that for the safety of Christian Europe, the Ottoman Turks must be checked. When in 1390, the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid annexed the Bulgarian town of Vidin on the Danube, whose prince had acknowledged the rule of Hungary. The Hungarian king Sigismund of Luxembourg, the brother of the German emperor Wenzel, appealed to all his fellow monarchs for help. The response was impressive. The French and English monarchs both promised to send troops. A great international army for the rescue of Christendom began to assemble. To finance it, the Burgundian duke raised special taxes that brought in the huge sum of 700,000 golden francs. Individual French nobles added their own contributions. The French and Burgundian lords agreed to accept the leadership of the Duke of Burgundy's eldest son, John, Count of Nevers, a lively young man of 24 while the Hungarian ambassadors hurried back to Buda to tell King Sigismund of their success and to advise him to continue his preparations, the Duke of Burgundy issued careful instructions for the organisation and behaviour of the Franco-Burgundian troops. They were summoned to assemble at Dijon on the 20th of April 1396. John of Nevers was to be in command, but in view of his youth, an advisory council was formed consisting of Philip, son of the Duke of Bar, Guy of La Tremouille and his brother William, the Admiral John of Vienne, and Odar, Lord of Chasseron. At the end of the month, an army of 10,000 men set out to march through Germany to the Hungarian capital of Buda. On its way, it was joined by 6,000 Germans, headed by Count Palatine Rupert, son of Rupert III of Wittelsbach, and Eberhardt, Count of Katznil-Bogen, closely followed by a 1,000 English fighting men under King Richard's half-brother, John Holland, Earl of Huntingdon. The Western armies reached the Hungarian capital of Buda about the end of July. There they found King Sigismund waiting with a force of some 60,000 men. His vassal Messea had joined him with another 10,000 men and about 13,000 adventurers came in from Poland, Bohemia, Italy and Spain. The united army of close on a 100,000 soldiers was the largest that had ever yet taken the field against the Muslims. Meanwhile, a fleet manned by the Knights of the Hospital and by Venetians and Genoese sailed into the Black Sea and lay off the mouth of the Danube. The Ottoman Sultan Bayezid, on his side, had not been idle. When news reached him that the Crusade had assembled in Hungary, the Sultan was laying siege to Constantinople. He at once summoned all his available troops and marched northward to the Danube. His army was estimated to number rather more than a 100,000. But three centuries of experience had taught the Western knights 
nothing. When the plan of campaign was discussed at Buda, King Sigismund advised a defensive strategy. He knew the strength of the Ottoman Turks. It would be better, he thought, to lure them into Hungary and attack them there from prepared positions. Like the Byzantine emperors during the earlier Crusades, Sigismund believed that the safety of Christendom depended on the preservation of his own kingdom. But like the earlier Crusaders, his allies envisaged a great offensive. The Turks would be overwhelmed and the Christian armies would advance triumphantly through Anatolia to Syria and Jerusalem itself. So vehement were they that Sigismund gave way early in August. The united hosts set out down the left bank of the Danube as far as Orsova by the Iron Gates and there it crossed into Ottoman territory. Eight days were spent in ferrying the army across the river. It then marched along the south bank to the town of Vidin. The Lord of Vidin was a Bulgarian prince, John Srachimar, but he was vassal to the Turkish Sultan who kept a small Turkish garrison there. On the arrival of the Christians, John Srachimar joined them and opened the gates. The Turks were massacred. The next town down the river was Rehova, a strong fortress with a moat and a double wall and a large Turkish garrison. The more vehement French knights, led by Philippe of Artois, once rushed to the attack and would have been annihilated had not Sigismund brought up his Hungarians. The Turkish garrison could not hold out for long against the whole Christian army. It was stormed and the whole population, many of whom were Bulgarian Christians, were put to the sword except for a few thousand wealthier people who were held for ransom. The scene was now set for a great battle between the Christians and the Ottomans that would decide the fate of the Balkans for the next 300 years. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe or recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear more about the great battle of Nicopolis and the triumph of the Ottoman Turks. See you then. (laughs) 